Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military, but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 136 of the Headspace and Tommy podcast, the show that's dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around service member, veteran, and military family mental health. On today's show, I have a conversation with an old friend of mine, Don McCausland. Don and I worked together in an online project in the early 2000s, building an online community practice for Army non-commissioned officers. Then we lost touch with each other, as often happens in the military. We then reconnected when I found that Don, like me, had become a mental health professional after leaving the military. It's going to take people like us either, you know, serving in a professional capacity as uh, therapists or just people who've been to therapy to reach out more and share more with fellow veterans and say, really, it's not a bad thing. It might feel weird and awkward, but it's going to help. So, you know, kind of encourage each other to not bunker up and stay in the house. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast. Once again, and as always, I really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. You know, uh, we often have veterans on the show talking about their mental health journey, mental health professionals on the show talking about their mental health journey, veterans who are mental health professionals. And then every once in a while, I just bring somebody on the show that I want to talk to. And uh, and that's sort of what this is today, is all of them wrapped up into one. Um, you may be enjoying a little bit of a walk down memory lane because uh, uh, Don and I have known each other uh, about 15 years. Is it? Uh, I mean, has it been yeah, that long? It's, it's way uh, back. It's, uh, it's scary to think of, but yeah, about 15 years. Way back years. in the day. Yeah. Uh, so it, and we'll probably catch up to this, but, uh, for the audience listening here, uh, Don and I were involved in a project back in the early 2000s, um, almost way back in the last century. And then, uh, as the army stuff goes, we, we lost touch, uh, with each other and he went to war and I went to war. And then turns out that, uh, he became a mental health professional specializing in veterans and I became a mental health professional specializing in veterans. So here we are, Don, welcome to the show. Yeah. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it, brother. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking, uh, probably the last time we saw each other, I think I stopped by Campbell one time on my way to, uh, Knoxville or something like that. And, and that yeah, had to be, you were passing through. Yep. 18 something years ago. Um, mm -hmm. and, and like I said before we got started, I was really enthused, enthused whenever I saw that you became a, a clinician like me, but, uh, before we get into that, I want to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your background and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, well, I won't go too far back, but um, uh, born and raised in New Jersey, joined the Army like uh, like Dwayne uh, in the Stone Ages, 1987, uh, right out of high school. Um, 
you know, sort of the bulk of my time in peacetime army, you know, went to Desert Storm in 90, and that was a short trip for a lot of us. And, uh, you know, it was just peacetime army, just kind of cruising along, doing your job. It was basically a nine to fiver back then. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, 9-11 happened. And <clears throat> so I ended up at Fort Campbell, uh, deployed three times with them, uh, for the initial invasion in Iraq and, uh, then two rotations, one right after the other with them. I was in the second brigade the whole time. And, uh, uh you know, like a lot of people, I went and came back and I was not really effectively dealing with the stuff, uh, that I was bringing home that emotional baggage, uh, like everyone else. I was a platoon sergeant that whole time. So I was the fixer. I was supposed to take care of people. And like most other people, I wasn't supposed to say I had a problem anyway. So I just kind of, uh, stuffed it real deep in a nice little black ball in the pit of my gut. But you know, every time I went and came back, I just brought back more and more garbage that I was not dealing with, uh, with the PTSD soul wound and, um, survivor's guilt, uh, had some close calls. I walked away. Other people didn't. So I struggled with that for a very long time. And, you know, uh, it, I'd finally reached a crisis point and, uh, you know, realized the light bulb finally went on after a number of years. And, uh, I realized, you know, my, my family was getting ready to bail on me and rightfully so. And I just thought I'm going to end up with nobody and nothing. And I'm going to be the pissed off, angry vet at the end of the bar with a beer that nobody wants to be around because he's a miserable SOB. And that's what I realized I was looking at. Um, uh, so I finally got serious about counseling. Oh, and, uh, somewhere in that. Uh, somewhere in that process, also I had, I had thoughts of suicide and, uh, that was not scary to me at all. It just was an option. You know, I just, it popped into my head one day and I thought, you know, okay. And, uh, you know, I didn't have like a fall to your knees moment of, oh my God, what am I doing? I just thought, yep, got it. And <laughs> check the block kind of a thing. Uh, but, uh, anyway, so jumping back to where I got serious about counseling was, you know, I finally started doing it for real instead of just to humor my wife. And, um, you know, I was doing individual counseling and couples counseling. Uh, so twice a week I was going to counseling for a while and that was a pretty intense time in my life. And, uh, that was right about when I was retiring. I was pretty much on my way out the door at that point. I was pretty well burnt. And, uh, that was 2009 and, uh, things started making sense for me and kind of coming into, you know, falling into place. And I started sorting some things out and I realized, well, there's a lot of brothers and sisters out there just like me struggling, just like I am. So it, that's when I decided, well, I need to do something about it. So I went to school, um, uh, went, got my bachelor's and my master's in social work. And I've been working with veterans ever since because it's what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, in, uh, in, in hearing that and hearing that journey and, um, you know, a lot of this is about leadership. I, I reconnected after a while with uh, one of the chaplains I was with in Afghanistan and I told him that I'd become a, a therapist and, he said he wasn't surprised, right? And him knowing me, but he was like, that's what, uh, you know, that's what platoon sergeants do. That's what first sergeants do, right? They take care of their troops. And, and he said, it's, it's really kind of in a different way. And, and, uh, you skipped over the, the little bit in, in which you and I had connected. So back in the early 2000s, we were working with, uh, with Sergeant Major Dan Elder on a very, basically the way I describe it is like rally point today, only we were doing it maybe better back then. But, yeah, um, I think better, but, but I'm biased. Was, uh, so, you know. Um, but it was an online community of practice of, uh, for army non-commissioned officers. And, and you were doing, and as you said, this was sort of the peacetime army and it, and, and that bridged over into like the early years in Iraq. And, uh, uh, but even then that was leadership, right? It, it's, you were, you were taking care of troops even back then. Um, and, and what you're doing now, what I'm doing now is really just an extension, I feel of of the the leadership that uh, we had when we were in the military oh yeah yeah definitely it's you know it's about taking care of your buddies and looking out for each other ultimately uh, that's the way i look at it 
so it's um and and you could have you know perhaps like you said done anything else it's it's always um uh, intriguing to me how combat veterans you and i um you know uh, they they say we saw the elephant uh, that did come back and and work with other combat veterans um how has that been for you uh, it's been really it's been good uh you know it does not you know i'm in a place now where i don't you know it doesn't bring anything uh, anything up for me that I struggle with. I mean, yeah, it brings up memories, but I'm in a place where I can kind of, you know, I can effectively deal with them and stuff. So it's, I view it as part of my healing process, continual healing process and part of my journey on the warrior's path. And as a warrior elder, you know, I'm, I'm, that's what I'm supposed to be doing is kind of guiding people through, you know, the dark areas, you know, cause I, I've been through there. So, um, it's good for me and it, it's good to be able to keep connecting with people and keep helping people out and keep showing people the way, you know, you know, I sort of described this as, uh, maybe you and I had gotten through that tunnel, right? We, we got through that dark patch. We're out the other side of the tunnel and in many ways go back into the tunnel and, and help others navigate sort of through that darkness. But you got out, uh, I think you said like 2009, uh, we were really, just then emerging, I mean, maybe that was the first time that I remember people seriously talking about TBI. I think we had just started the embedded behavioral health. Um, even earlier on when I retired in 14, um, mental health wasn't something that the army or the military in general, but the army specifically, it really wasn't wrapping its arms around, but you had already been through three deployments and struggled with this stuff. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and, you know, they were kind of, the military was kind of floundering, floundering with that whole process of the, the, you know, the mental health process. And, you know, when you come back, you do the, your post-deployment, uh, mental health checks and stuff like that. And of course we were just kind of faking our way through and saying all is well, I'm fine, you know? So, and they didn't have any real way to follow up on it. That was a, you know, worth much. It wasn't very effective. So there are plenty of people slipping through the cracks. Yeah. But then I can imagine even as you got out, um, that was sort of the same thing. Um, because the VA was just getting around to dealing with sort of that first wave of post nine 11 vets too. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just like everyone else, they were struggling and trying to find their way because it's a big gigantic, healthcare organization and they're geared toward, you know, physical health of older generations. And now suddenly they're just getting hit with this tsunami of mental health uh, issues and they definitely weren't equipped to deal with it. Yeah. And, and you stayed there in Clarksville, right? You know, it's in, and maybe not like, uh, or, or sort of like Colorado Springs. It's a large military population. Um, it, it, but you've stayed and you've practiced in, um, outside 101st. Um, me being an 82nd guy, you, you 101st guys are a little unique. Um, but, uh, <laughs> uh that's way kinder than I thought you were going to say. <laughs> But but even then, was there was there a challenge when you first started working with veterans? Was it hard to get uh, vets to come in the door? Yeah, it's it's always hard to to make that step and just get in the door, get people in the door because you know you still have that mentality of don't talk about it, don't show weakness, don't say anything to anyone except for maybe a couple of buddies, but definitely not any anybody having to do with mental health care. Um, cause that could be a career that could be, you know, and even if you were out and not worried about an army career, you still had that mentality. So it's, you know, that could be your job or your family, you know, you just shift focus to something else that it could interfere with and, and ruin. So you keep your trap shut. So you worked in a, a couple of different organizations. Um, you were talking right before we started and, and what I wasn't, I didn't know. Um, but you were working with, uh, Dr. Ed Tick and the Soldier's Heart Foundation. And, and we had just had Dr. Ed Tick back in episode 109 and 110. Um, but, uh, but Ed Tick is another one that's really, you, you mentioned earlier, elder warrior. This is a, a, a phrase that he kept talking about is we as elder warriors have a responsibility to help the younger warriors kind of come in. I, I, I'd like to hear about uh, how that program or how that process went for you and, and is still going on. 
yeah. So, you know, when I first started getting into mental health with veterans, I was working, at, you know, I co-founded a small um, nonprofit that was offering counseling to veterans, uh, active duty and their families. And during the startup, you know, I was doing my research and I uh, kind of stumbled upon this organization, Soldier's Heart. And, um, it was, it was quite accidental that I found them on the internet and, um, kind of roughly the same time I was doing some volunteer work at the, uh, Fisher house, uh, here at Fort Campbell. And they had a bunch of books on, uh, the bookshelf in the storage room. I was in there cleaning one day and there was a stack of these books called war in the soul. And I looked at the cover and read the back flap and thought, well, that sounds kind of cool. I'll check that out. And, uh, you know, having never heard of Ed Tick or War in the Soul or anything like that, and I read it and it was almost literally like the clouds parted and the sun shined on my head. And I was like, wow, you know, this, this dude really gets it, you know? So I reached out to them and <clears throat> developed a relationship with them. Uh, we started doing retreats, uh, with Soldier's Heart, um, did two. And then started to get a little deeper into the work and with Ed and his um, partner, Kate, uh, co-founder of Soldier's Heart. And so I uh, attended uh, a level one training with them uh, and then a, a master's level training and uh, just kept facilitating um, retreats with them and uh, got deeper um more deeper into the organization and getting more involved. And I ended up on the board of directors for a time. Uh, so yeah, I've been doing a lot of work with them, not just with the retreats and all, but you know, Ed's really, he really took me under his wing and he's mentored me in a lot of ways and a, and a lot of things that have been helpful to me personally. And then I like to share with other people, you know, to kind of help them make, make sense of stuff. See, and, and a lot of this is what, what he and I had talked about is, um, you know, not pathologizing trauma. You know, um, he had mentioned, you know, that, that life is trauma. Um, and, and he is really looking at, uh, moral injury and, and even 10 mm -hmm. years ago, right? You know, his, his uh, <laughs> yeah. moral injury was, you know, really just being discussed with, with Litz and McGinn and, and Nash and them. Um, but, uh, and, and he had identified this and, and he and I talked about, um, you know, even as far back as the seventies and eighties when he noticed, but, um, that's some, maybe I'll be even more euphemistic, some non-traditional stuff. It's, it has, it, yeah. it's not PTSD oh, yeah. work. It's, it's not trauma work. It's not TBI work. Yep. Yeah. And the, the, a lot of those, those non-traditional ways that some people, well, not so many people nowadays. I mean, some, but when Ed first started anyway, and then earlier on in my journey in this process, there was still a lot of skepticism about that. You know, those non-traditional ways like, uh, sweat lodges and things of that nature. And people kind of viewed it like kind of weird. Am I going to have to cross my legs and chant? And are you going to put crystals on my head? What kind of weird witchcraft is this, you know, but you know, it, that stuff has really made sense to me. And it, it makes sense to people more and more that I find that, you know, because people are open to it, and they're just looking for answers and trying to figure this thing out. And they're realizing that maybe traditional talk therapy is not as helpful as it could be. Definitely not just being full of meds is not helpful. That's just numbing it, but that's not solving the problem. So they're looking for some solutions. And, you know, these things are really helpful to people. Right. And, and a lot like in, in like you, I think I probably picked it up in, uh, in, in maybe one of the, the, libraries overseas or something but um the idea of and for me i think it was achilles in vietnam with jonathan shea where he put into mm -hmm. words something that i recognized right and and you said yeah. that you you read the back of um of of his book and 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 even more and you as a combat veteran recognized that what he was saying was the truth. And a lot of this moral injury stuff resonates with veterans. A lot of the, yeah, cause I go through this probably the first or second time that I, I actually work with a veteran, um, that we'll actually go through and we'll talk about the differences between PTSD and TBI, moral injury and, and purpose and meaning. And we'll get to mm -hmm. the place around, around moral injury. And it'll be the first time that they've heard about it. 
Um, and then as we talk through it, the, a light bulb will go on their eyes and they'll be like, holy crap, that's it, right? Because you mentioned survivor's guilt yeah. earlier. Um, PTSD doesn't necessarily relate to survivor's guilt. That's more moral injury. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, we live our lives and and this this whole concept of moral injury, sometimes it's hard for people to wrap their heads around, but it's, you know, it's pretty simple if you think about it. We learn from the earliest ages that, you know, to not hurt people, to be nice, to have good manners, to use your words, don't hit, you know, when you're a kid, use your words, you know, don't hit your friends or don't do this, don't do that. So, you know, you learn that either just through upbringing from religion uh, to not do certain things. And then we get into the military and then more, you know, more importantly, we go to war and then we're expected to go completely against the grain as far as what we've been taught all our lives, which is, you know, those things about being nice and respectful and don't hit people and don't be mean. And you have to violate basic moral codes that are hammered into us from the beginning. Uh, and yeah, that's so why, why wouldn't somebody struggle with that? It's, it's morals. It's what you're supposed to do or not do morally, you know, militarily, you know, that's your mission. You know, you're supposed to engage with the enemy and all that stuff, but still, you know, on a deeper level, all that training still, you know, allows you to be able to override that stuff and do what your, you know, what your duty is, but it's still there. It's still a moral, moral struggle. Maybe not in the moment you're not feeling it, but later on it catches up to you, you know? And I think in, and we had, uh, um, McGinn on the show and she was talking about what's appropriate in one environment isn't appropriate in the other. And, yeah. and that, that anger and that being mean and, and, and being forceful and pointing a gun at somebody's face, somebody literally, you know, that's, that's acceptable and even encouraged, um, in combat. Yeah. But then when you get back here, um, it's, it's not necessarily appropriate. Yeah. And it's, and that's where that, you know, you, you learn to react to situations in that way through no fault of your own. You then come back home and nobody tells you, nobody untrains you or trains you in a different method. And so you revert to that stuff that worked before because, well, I, I did these things before, not necessarily pointing guns at people, but, you know, reacting with anger and, um, aggression and things of that nature. It kept you alive before. So it, surely it's going to work now. I mean, you don't, maybe you don't have that complete thought process, but you know, your brain is, that's where your brain's at. This kept me alive before and it worked. So I'm going to stick with it because it's what I know and it's what's always worked. And that obviously doesn't translate, uh, to civilian life or, you know, just moving on from the military to whatever. Yeah, that puts me in mind. You mentioned earlier about when we came back from combat and, and went through our post deployment. And I think I've told the story here before, but, uh, but I was actually going through a post deployment after my second combat tour. So my first from Afghanistan mm-hmm. and they had us go take this. I don't know. It was a 250 question psychological exam. I think it might have been MMPI or whatever. And so I come down to mm-hmm. the end in the, the uh, provider there. And they're looking at the paper and they kind of look at me in the corner of their eye and they said, you, you want to go talk to somebody? I'm like, no. <laughs> and, and I was like, why? And they said, well, this paper says that you're pretty angry. And I said, I was just a platoon sergeant. I was just a platoon sergeant in Afghanistan and I'm about to take over a company as a first sergeant. Anger is pretty much what I do. So they were like, are you yeah, sure you yeah. don't want to go see somebody? No, I don't want to go see somebody. Give me my stamp and let me get out of here. Yeah. And, and, and that's sort of, and that's what it was. And everybody else around and you were, you were encouraged, um, especially when you were in the military, right? You, when, when you oh, were yeah. still in that sort of structured environment that you were, um, you know, rewarded for being, and I don't want to say aggressive, but for, for, but for being that go-getter and being that one that can get the job done, you know, and, um, and, and a lot of veterans, as you said, you did. And, and I did to some extent, I agree. I, um, my wife and I went to marriage counseling after my, my Iraq and Afghanistan tour. Um, and, and honestly, yeah, it saved my marriage. And I was even vocal by that time I was as a company first sergeant and I was even vocal to my troops saying, you know, tops going to, to therapy and things like that it was something. And even then that was, I think 2010. And that was a little strange to people, um, mm-hmm. to be yeah. that open about, about therapy. 
Um, but then when you get out of the military and it's, it's even more foreign. Oh yeah. And that's what, that's what I, you know, tell a lot of people and just kind of help them realize that, you know, I used to, I got paid to be an asshole, excuse the language. So it's, it's easy to blend and camouflage all of that, those behaviors and those, you know, feelings and reactions because you get paid to do it. And so I'm, I'm curious to hear, um, what is it like for veterans to come in to see you as a combat veteran? Um, I'd like to hear your point of view on it. And I know how it sometimes works well and maybe doesn't work for me. Uh, but when a veteran comes in and realize that you had three tours in Iraq, what is it like for them? Um, well, once they start to talk about what they're dealing with and I kind of, you know, I'm an open book. I don't hide anything, you know, within reason, of course, I don't give them everything, but share enough so that they know that when they come see me and they start talking about these things, there's no judgment. They don't have to justify why they feel the way they do or why they reacted the way they did. Um, they just can be open and focus on focus on being able to take care of what they got to take care of. And when I share a little bit about what I experienced, uh, usually the reaction, they get really wide eyed and they just say, holy shit, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And their faces light up and they feel like, finally, you know, I can be honest with this dude and I'm not going to get judged or have to worry about, you know, going to a rubber room or something, you know? And I think that's a pretty common fear for a lot of veterans, right? Is um, And you said earlier that, uh, you know, it, it takes a lot for anybody to come through that door and a veteran doesn't need <laughs> yeah. much of an excuse to to avoid therapy. Um, but but being able to talk to somebody who gets it, right? That's that's what, you know, everybody wants is to be able to, to not have to explain all the nuances, right? I don't want to have to explain what HUA means and I don't want to have to explain <laughs> yeah. the difference, you know? Um, but but really, um, and I sort of talked to my non-veteran colleagues that it's, it's just a, it's a shortcut to rapport. Not that you, not that a non-veteran can't build rapport. Um, but it's, uh, it's a real quick shortcut to get to the real work. Yeah. Oh yeah. It, it definitely cuts a lot of the BS and you can get right to the heart of the matter a lot of times instead of kind of working through some of those ankle biters, as we used to call them, the smaller things that you feel like you have to navigate your way through, you can just kind of almost jump right in with both feet. So that's that's hugely helpful. So you also worked for a time for the VA. Yeah, I, I was at the VA for uh, two and a half years. I worked at the uh, Nashville Vet Center um, at a community access point here in Clarksville. So, um, you know, the main office was in Nashville. My boss was there. Uh, but I was working out of Clarksville uh, in a, out of a church of all things, uh, borrowed space in a church, which uh, was definitely challenging for a lot of different reasons. But yeah. And we've had uh, we've had a couple of guests um, uh, from the vet center uh, on the show, but I don't know that we've ever actually sort of defined the difference maybe between the vet centers and the main VA. Yeah. Um, so the vet centers were started um, in the early 80s and they were uh, started by Vietnam vets and it was a peer mentor, a peer counseling kind of a setup. And it was they were set up in storefronts basically just for uh, Vietnam vets to come in and talk to other vets and basically have what they used to call, you know, a rap session, just sit and talk stuff out. And that's how it started. And it started to gather steam. And then uh, the VA expanded the program once they recognized the, the, the importance of it, the value of it. Um, so it kind of grew from there. So um, vet centers are, they fall under the VA umbrella is how I used to explain it. They fall under the VA umbrella, but it's its own standalone program. Um, so how I explained my role with the VA, because you know, a lot of vets have issues with the VA. So there's that suspicion or concern. So I used to tell them, I have a VA laptop. I get a paycheck from the VA. And that's where my relationship with the VA starts and ends. You know, big VA, like a hospital, you know, like people traditionally see the VA 
as being. So, yeah. Um, and that was really helpful, uh, for a lot of people because that put them at ease. The other thing was that, um, vet centers have their own, um, uh, electronic health record system. So people in big VA, like uh, the hospitals could not access a person's, uh, notes, just get on the laptop and log in and look at your records and what you talked about, which was a big concern for people for privacy issues and, you know, worries about, are they going to mess with my ratings or, you know, pull some kind of shenanigans on me. And, uh, so that was, that was also helpful. And vet centers are separate from the VA, right? They're not in, in the main hospitals or the clinics. I mean, they're, they're like, in your case, in the basement of a church or something like that. But, yeah. uh, but they're in the community, like you said, a community access point. Yeah. They're, they're right in the community and they are, they're not in VA medical centers or anything like that. They're their own kind of separate entity, like I said, and, and to the point where they're not, cohabitating or co-located in a building with other VA activities. Now, did you see um, a, a wide range, uh, you know, not just post 9-11 veterans, uh, uh, but also like, you know, uh, Vietnam veterans, Gulf War, stuff like that, or were you primarily yeah, seen a yeah. post 9-11? I, it was, the majority was uh, post 9-11, but I did see some Desert Storm vets. I did see some Vietnam vets. I had a Korean War veteran client, if you can imagine that. And he, he was, you know, early to mid eighties and had never been bothered by his experiences in combat from Korea. He was in the peacetime army before Korea kicked off and he was sent from Japan to Korea and, um, kind of thrown right into the mix of that whole mess. And, he was 83 years old and he's coming to see me four or five years ago. Now, I guess it's been, um, and talking about stuff he experienced and lived through in Korea of all places in 1951, 1952. So that's, that's, um, that's trauma. That's what happens. It doesn't have to happen right away. It might happen six months. It might happen a year. It might never happen. It might happen 50 years later. 60 years later, but he was in there crying, talking about his experiences, never talked about it with his wife. So he had his wife come in so she could hear for the first time <laughs> ever, um, what he was struggling with and why. So, yeah. Yeah. I had the same experience in, uh, in here in Colorado Springs, but, uh, uh, he had had a, a whole, he was the former, uh, uh, commander for the military order, of the Purple Heart. He had done all these great things in the community. Um, and like, like your veteran, he was a Korean War veteran. Um, and like your veteran, his wife came in and started hearing stuff for the first time. Um, yeah. and here we are 60, 70 years later, the Vietnam, uh, uh, the Vietnam veterans were 50 years later. I'm curious mm. to hear what you saw, maybe the differences between the, the veterans, maybe differences and similarities between veterans of the different areas that you worked with. Uh, there's a lot of similarities in that. Just the, the experience, the, just the base experience, maybe not specifics were obviously different, but that overall experience, um, the goods and the bads were, there's a lot of similarities there, a lot of similar range of emotions and, um, you know, personal experiences. So, um, there were a lot of, a lot of parallels with it, um, with the struggles, uh, especially, um, just maybe coming about, uh, coming about, uh, it in a different way, but affecting them in the same ways. Um, so, and a lot of Vietnam vets wanted to get involved and reach out to the younger guys, um, because they knew that they struggled for a long time before they were able to get a help. And they did not want the, the younger guys to have to wait that long and to struggle like they did with different things, you know, thoughts of suicide or attempts at suicide or, you know, substance, you know, substance use and abuse and things of that nature. They were not wanting the, the younger guys to, and gals to deal with that. So they wanted to, they wanted to help. Yeah. Yeah. That's also, uh, my experience. I think I had, uh, 
um, somebody recently and they said that the, the mud still smells like mud and the blood still smells like blood, right? So combat's <laughs> yeah, still yeah. combat, right? You know, bullets yep. are still the, the same thing depending on which eras. But then, yes, there were the, the, the very big differences. Um, but even as you were talking and, uh, so my father was a Vietnam veteran. I remember him, um, before I deployed to Iraq the first time, and this would have been 06. Um, he, uh, you know, he looked at me and he was like, Hey, when you get back, talk to your wife. Because, you know, that, and, and he was like, he said, that's, that's one of the things, not all of them, of course, but that was one of the things that started to go downhill between him and my mom. And, yeah. and this idea of, you know, uh, son, don't do the things I've done. Um, and, and I think that goes back to that concept of elder warriorship in that the Vietnam veterans were elder warriors without perhaps younger warriors to speak into until this new generation came around. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they were wanting to make a difference, like I said. So, you know, even, you know, they recognized the importance of that and what they missed out on basically. So they didn't, they didn't want the same thing just to happen again. And I've heard that from Vietnam vets that I've met along the way through like uh soldier's heart, particularly is they've, you know, they've very specifically said, you know, we don't want to screw this up. We don't want to let you down. So they did, took it upon themselves to to serve in that role, that warrior elder role, and and guide us through those those dark places. So, what does it look like now? Do you think going going forward in the future? Because um, uh, my son was born one month before nine eleven, and he turns mm-hmm. eighteen this year, and could enlist if he wanted to, and fight in the same combat that I fought in, or at least in the same battlefield that I fought in. Um, and, and that's never happened in American history, and so. We have an entire another generation for us elder warriors to start to speak into. Um, what do you think the is the conversation around mental health changing? Um, it is, yeah, but there's there's still some struggles with trying to figure out what to do with it and about it. But the the con- conversation is definitely changing for the better. Um, there's just some. Uh, I think there's some struggles that we're still trying to figure out, you know, like the, the suicide rates, for example, it's, we're just, people are still, and the system in general are still struggling with, you know, how are we going to deal with this effectively? Cause it feels like no matter what we throw at that issue, it's kind of getting tossed back in our faces and, and not doing any good. That's what it feels like sometimes I'm sure. So yeah, there's, there's still some things to try to figure out for sure, but it's, it's, it's way better than it was. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think these, um, maybe we're not doing as many rap groups and stuff like that, but this idea, you know, this is where the podcast came about is, is for us to talk and, and share that knowledge and things like that. Um, but, but really trying to make a difference in that veteran suicide epidemic. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, it's going to take people like us either, you know, serving in a professional capacity as uh, therapists or just people who've been to therapy to reach out more and share more with fellow veterans and say, really, you know, it's not a bad thing. It might feel weird and awkward, but it's going to help. So, you know, kind of encourage each other to not uh, bunker up and stay in the house and not leave and not associate with other people. And you have to kind of open up a little bit in order for that healing to start, which is, you know, easier said than done. Um, you know, I, I kind of tell people we get used to putting up these walls, you know, these HESCO barriers around ourselves with two rows of concertina wire on top to keep people away, keep them at arm's length to keep you from getting hurt or to keep you from lashing out at them to protect your loved ones. But in the process of putting up those walls to protect us and keep people away, you're not just keeping negative stuff away. You're keeping positive stuff away. So, you know, we're stuck in this struggle of on the one hand, putting up barriers to protect ourselves. And yet at the same time, peeking over those walls and looking outside and saying, why the hell won't these people talk to me? You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. so it's just, <laughs> and it's not, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to deal with. It's hard to open yourself up because vulnerability is not cool. If you let your guard down, if you become vulnerable, bad stuff happens. 
we learn this through training. We learn it through experience. So like I said before, you revert back to what always worked and putting up the walls and um, barriers that worked before. So I'm going to stick with it. Yeah, but it doesn't translate, I, you know? Yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. I tell my, uh, my clients, it's like um, it, us veterans, we set up an offensive defense, right? You know, we, mm-hmm. we set up triple strand. We, we set up claymores outside and, and, and we lob a few rounds outside the wire just to make sure that people know that uh, not to come near us. Um, but then we're, we're pissed off when people don't come near us. And so it's, um, yeah. <laughs> if, if, if we, if we don't, if we don't let down that offensive kind of defense, then, uh, then we're not actually going to get better even though we want to. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And so in, in, in sort of where you're at now, so this is something that actually when you and I first connected a bit ago, um, I, I went it just out of the blue and I was like, Hey, that name sounds familiar, uh, mm-hmm. is when you transitioned uh, away from the VA to, uh, work in for the, the Cohen clinic there in uh, Clarksville. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been there since, uh, we opened our first year, uh, anniversary was the 26th of April of last year, uh, was when we opened up and we just had our first year anniversary. Um, so I was at the VA and, um, I had heard about them, you know, they did like their initial community visit to kind of do an assessment of, is this a good place to set up a clinic? Um, and I saw that in the paper and kind of did a little bit of research because I was intrigued. And the more I read, the more I thought, man, I got to get on board with this. This, this sounds good. So I was just kind of stalking the, uh, stalking the, um, the job postings for them. And, uh, as soon as I had that opportunity, I, I jumped on it. And, uh, for the clinic here in Clarksville, I was the first uh, clinician hired and my clinic director likes to joke and it's a joke, but it's the truth. She jokes that, Don applied for this job the day we posted the position, maybe quite literally within hours, which I don't doubt at all. But, uh, yeah, the, I mean, I would visit multiple times a day and that thing popped up and pow, I dropped my resume right away. So, yeah. Um, and it's, it's going really well. I mean, the demand here in this community has always been high and the, um, assets have been low as far as availability is concerned. So, um, it's, we've just been, we hit the ground running and we've been sprinting ever since it's so busy, but it's a good thing. Right. And, and we had, um, so we had Anthony Hassan, uh, probably way back in the beginning of the podcast. Oh, yeah. was one of the yeah. first guests, um, uh, in the second or third, uh, because like you, I'm, I'm really encouraged that a, um, uh, taking a community-based approach, um, and 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 I often describe clinics like like the one that I work for now, not not as part of the Cohen Clinic or the Cohen Clinic. I mean, they're almost like civilian vet centers, really. Yeah, that's that's basically it. And and a lot of us uh, there at the clinic, well, not just mine, but um, network-wide for Cohen Veterans Network, um, are either veterans or family members of vets. So you're gonna end up. 98% chance you're going to end up talking to somebody who's been there in one form or fashion and you don't have to, you know, you don't have to go through that stuff that we talked about before explaining what HUA means and explaining some of those cultural things, you know, you can just get right to the issue. Yeah, I'm, uh, I, from way back when, when they first started coming here, I didn't jump on the job openings quite as quick as you did because, uh, <laughs> the, the Denver clinics, uh, I love them, but they're, they're an hour and a half away. So it's not like I'm yeah. planning on uh, making that transition. <laughs> but, but any organization that's, um, again, this is another indicator of how it's, um, how the, the mental health space is changing and especially veteran mental health and the investment that we're, we're making in the community. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, it's that willingness to invest in the community. And, um, you know, like with, uh, Stephen A. Cohen that made this investment because he had a personal connection to what was going on with uh, post 9-11 veterans because his son joined the Marine Corps and served in Afghanistan. And, you know, his son got home with no, you know, no physical issues and relatively okay. And, um, you know, so he was lucky in that respect, but he told his dad that, you know, if, hey, if you want to do something, you know, 
why don't you look at doing this? Because I'm all right, but a lot of my buddies are not all right. And there's not many places for them to go. So that's kind of, that was the, the, the driving force behind uh, starting it in the first place. Yeah, hopefully we will uh, get to the point where we can address the um, the issues so some of our brothers and sisters uh, aren't dealing with this 60 years from now the way that we're helping some Korean War vets deal with it today. Yeah, yeah, hopefully so. But I, I, I'm hopeful. I, I think it's I think it's going to happen. It's happening now. I think it's going to keep going. Well, this has been great, man. I, I really appreciate it. It was good catching up with you. It's uh, it, it was just really a a shock to me that uh, uh we lost touch i think uh, a couple of our peers like i i ran into uh, paul nagel i think when uh, when he and i were in iraq um, oh, yeah. but uh but uh but losing touch and then finding out that two, uh, both of us took similar paths it's it's been uh, it's been pretty neat yeah that was that was pretty funny when you hit me up on facebook and just like oh I'll be damned. <laughs> I know that dude, you know? <laughs> yeah. So if people wanted to uh, reach out, maybe they're in uh, Clarksville or maybe they would have some reason to go to Clarksville. I don't know why, but if they did want to go to Clarksville, <laughs> um, how could they get a hold of you and, and maybe work with you and what you guys are doing there? Um, well, you know, I'm all over, I'm on Facebook or I work at the, uh, Stephen A. Cohen military family clinic at Centerstone here in Clarksville. Um, so, uh, I'm pretty active in veterans, uh, veterans things. So you can Google me basically. Um, uh, you can shoot me an email. Um, uh, my email at work is don.mccasland at centerstone.org. Um, I have a, a blog that I get onto every now and again called the, the functional veteran. Um, uh, let me see. You can shoot me an email, uh, at hotmail, uh, dmccas at hotmail.com, you know, just reach out and I'll do what I can to help. Um, you know, I, I just encourage people to, to reach out, even if you're not in Clarksville, even in, if you're saying some, I don't know, God forsaken place like Fayetteville, for example. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I had to get that in there somewhere God, about four. God Bragg. forbid. So right? yeah, yeah. Right. So if you're, even if you're there, really, truly, if you're there and you're trying to figure something out and you're trying to find resources, you know, reach out and I'll do what I can to connect you with resources or just kind of help you talk through something and get you headed in the right direction. Uh, you know, I've, I've had people do that before, uh, reach me on my blog and say, hey, I'm in Oregon, you know, and I'm trying to figure this out. Do you have any suggestions? You know, I'm I'm more than open to do that. So. That's great, man. I will make sure to uh, to to get all those uh, links in the show notes so people can reach out. Thanks for yeah, coming brother. on the show, man. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. It's been great. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. So there you go, a conversation with my buddy Don McCoslett. There are not enough veterans in the mental health space, and I'm glad to know that there are others like me. If you're in the Clarksville, Tennessee area, look up the great work that they're doing at the Cohen Clinic and make sure that you let Don know that you heard about him from our show. I keep saying feedback is important, and it really is. Some recent feedback I received turned into a shorter podcast with the highlights of the conversations with Don and I. This is still a one-man show, and I am looking for folks who may be interested in helping out. If you like the work that we're doing and you want us to keep going, drop me a line at info at veteranmentalhealth.com and we can chat about some areas that I could use help in. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash HST136. Just a reminder that the guests and information on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be considered professional advice. While I am a therapist, I'm not your therapist. If something you've heard makes you think that you should talk to somebody, then reach out to do so. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track, Not Alone, from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us for the next episode, hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice, and until then, remember veterans, you're not alone. 
The struggle is real, found a piece and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P. I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.